When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So if I was assessing him, I'd really try and unpick to, to try and get him to understand if what he's feeling is the reflection of the truth of what actually happened. Was he mistreated? Was Megan mistreated? Uh, or whether he's just being a bit sensitive. If he was sensitive to a point that it became a disorder, uh, if you found that his version of events differed so much from the reality, would there be a clinical diagnosis? What would what might that be? You could have like a paranoid personality or even a paranoid personality disorder which is pretty much what it sounds like. So it's when people are very kind of hypersensitive. They take neutral uh, comments as being quite offensive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen and people and things, any animals who happen to be listening in the background. I've got... Dr. Shaham Das on today. He always uh, performs well with you guys. I think people listen for longer. You're more intrigued. There must be something about um, how he speaks and what he speaks about. He's a forensic psychiatrist who's worked at uh, Broadmoor, I believe, and lots of places. He's a friend of mine. It's all very casual, isn't it? It's all a nice, casual, casual, nice podcast. Nice podcast. Um, we are delving into a bit of the stuff about Prince Harry. We recorded this a few days ago, so more revelations have come out since. But I think we cover a lot of like the sibling rivalry with Prince William, uh, and Shaham looks at like how he would diagnose that kind of thing if he was dealing with families uh, as a psychiatrist. Um, and then we move on to Megan, and we try and have a bit more of a balanced view because I know you know long-time listeners know that I have often been a bit. Hmm. Uh, Anti-Megan. Uh, I, I do think she's a bit of a narcissist, but I think Diana was, and I think uh, I think the royal family are. I think I am. I think you are. We all are. So I'm trying to be a bit like more, or, you know, you know what I mean. Um, and we'll go on to Andrew Tate at the end. If you haven't heard of him, he's this uh, fellow who got famous online. He's become like this sort of right wing uh, mouthpiece, like super, you know, quite far. And we're looking at him and his history and background and his potential narcissism and things like that. Uh, I loved doing this episode. Always love talking to Dr. Shaham Das. Go and follow his YouTube channel. It's called A Psych for Sore Minds, which is a great YouTube channel name. You're not going to forget that in a hurry. Some great episodes coming up. You know the drill. You know the drill. You know who's happening and all that. So I'm not going to tire you with that. There were a couple of facts we got wrong. Uh, or Shaham got them wrong. By the way, because this already went out on YouTube, he made a joke about a necklace, like oh, saying it was feminine or something. The world went mad. It was just a joke. So you'll hear that. Um, you know, fair enough. He makes a joke. People can make jokes, can't they? And he said there was a point where he says that it was $10 million they got for their Netflix. It was actually $100 million, which is even more mad. Uh, so, yes, that will that will happen and you will hear it and you will feel appeased because you will have heard me say that I now know that's an even larger number. Um, thank you all for being here. Thanks for doing all the normal stuff and listening. Come sign up on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold to support the podcast. Keep it running. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, but now 
but now you're on the edge of forensic psychiatry analysis of the royal family, Prince Harry and Prince William in particular, with Dr. Shahom Das. It's a big day today, I think. I think today anyway, because the Prince Harry book Spare has, is coming out, reports are coming out about it. And yeah. we're going to do, I think we're going to do a little bit of a psychoanalysis, are we? Or you are. So I made some notes of, of things that I think I have the most to say for your viewers. And they would be like just the background between Prince Harry and Prince William and what I think has caused or contributed to this rift. Um, probably the most shocking thing, is it really that shocking? But the most shocking thing that's been reported from his autobiography is that uh, William physically attacked him. So I was going to talk about, you know, what I think about that. And just about him airing his public, uh, his laundry in public in general. Um, and then if you wanted to, I know you're quite interested in Meghan Markle. So I've got a few things to say about, not necessarily, well, her personality, but also about what I think about her and uh, Harry going off on this journey and uncoupling from the royal family, what it all means. Okay. Well, it's fascinating, all of this stuff. People want to know about this mysterious family behind the closed doors. You know, no one really, wants, no one really knows anything about them. Um, so what what happened? So I've, I read, hang on, I'm just going to read this out, uh, <laughs> that... Yeah, they, there was an altercation. William hit Harry, and then um, Harry said he wanted me to hit him back, but I chose not to. So, what? What is? Do you know what's gone on there? What's What's happened here? So, I've, I've not read the autobiography, but from what I've read in various newspapers, it's pretty much what you said. So, it was in 2019. They had an argument apparently because William was calling Meghan difficult, rude, and abrasive. Um, what I think is quite interesting is that according to what Prince Harry wrote, he said insults were exchanged and then William attacked him. So it does kind of sound like we might be getting a very one-sided uh, version of events. So he didn't say, I said anything out of order. He said insults were exchanged. He, he said that he kind of grabbed him by the collar and ripped his necklace. I'm not sure why he's wearing a, a necklace. necklace. Maybe he's in touch with his feminine side uh, and then sort of pushed him up. I don't think he actually like, punched him, punched him, but he put kind of they tussled and he fell onto the floor and there was some sort of dog bowl behind them, which broke and like le left a visible injury, which I don't know what that is. Like, it doesn't, like if it was bleeding, surely he'd have said it was a cut. So I don't know, maybe a small bruise, maybe a, a dog bowl shaped indentation in his back. Are you suggesting that necklaces are only worn by women? There are loads of men wear necklaces, but they tend to be the sort of... Um almost ultra aggressive i mean we're gonna we might talk about andrew tate later that's a perfect example he i'm sure he has one or two or several necklaces i, I you strike me as the kind of person that has multiple necklaces no necklace i don't have any <laughs> i don't have any jewelry i'm not manly enough i think you have to be really manly to wear those kinds of kinds of things but it's in, it is interesting you know what jokes aside it is interesting to know that he wears a necklace and that these people are wearing necklaces i don't know why exactly but i just i do find that interesting so what is going on between these brothers over the years i guess there's a complicated thing where what happened to diana must be getting sort of confused amid the siblings and and they're seeing it as happening again the press uh reacting to megan and that kind of thing yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've made a few notes, if you don't mind me referring to them. So I think there's loads of different factors that are relevant. So the first and foremost, I think there's some sibling rivalry, right? So <clears throat> sibling rivalry happens more if you've got two people of the same gender who are quite similar in age, which is absolutely describes our two princes. Uh, it tends to be for people who feel that they have either some favoritism shown to them by a parent. Um, 
or there's some kind of difference in their status. And obviously Princess Diana is no longer with us. I don't think we know for a fact if Charles favours one prince on top of the other, but I think you could argue that the country, I don't know if favour is the right word, but the country has like a higher esteem almost automatically for William compared to Harry because he is the future king. Like he's got this role he that he's kind of born to do and Harry might feel like a spare part. In fact, his autobiography is actually called Spare. So I think that's one thing right off the bat, just their kind of dynamic. Yeah. Is there a way to ever not have that sibling rivalry? I tried to think, because I had that with my brother and it's such a shame because you look back and you go, why did we, what was that about? Is it just really common? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really common. I think there are things that fuel it. So uh, somebody, if both, either, either or, or both siblings have uh, like quite abrasive attitudes or um, are quite sensitive or easily insulted or even paranoid, uh, then it's much more likely to occur rather than if they're quite sort of timid and, and f- afraid of confrontation. But what I was saying before, I think it's the, it's the way that the pa- parents deal with it as well. So some parents will completely fuel that for whatever reason, either because they're just bad parents, they lack empathy, or because they might think that it kind of helps to build this sense of competition in between two siblings, uh, whereas some parents I think could be really good at getting on top of it and trying to, trying to kind of cut it out at the roots before it grows into this this uncontrollable weed. I suppose if I put my empathy hat on for for the royals, which which I'm sometimes I sometimes don't do, but for Prince Harry, it must have been quite difficult growing up in William's shadow. And William sort of, you know, I I think I've seen that before. Tell me if I'm wrong. That sort of dynamic where the older brother is very successful, and he's just by by his birthright he's successful. William isn't he? Because he's going to be the king, as you say, uh, and he's able to be a lot more, you know, demure and very classy, and everything he does seems to be with ease and. Do you think that might be responsible for Prince Harry's ver- the various times where he's broken rank, acted out? Of course, there was the famous or infamous incident when he wore the Nazi uniform out. I mean, it's just not very becoming of a of a royal. You know, is that responsible for it? Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, obviously, obviously, this is a big generalization. There are ex- there are a lot of exceptions, but very broadly speaking, we know or psychologists know that firstborns tend to be quite reliable, and quite conscientious. I think we can say that about William, right? So he's very sort of serious. He's very stoic. And I think that's related to them having expect like a high level of expectation placed on them since they were kids. You know, like I, I, I can speak to this myself. I've got two boys, one who's seven, one who's nine. And we expect the nine-year-old to be the more mature one and to, you know, if they're squabbling, I couldn't word this carefully, but I think rightly or wrongly, in fact, probably wrongly, you put, you kind of give the the older one more responsibility to sort it out because he's older, he can he can understand things, you know, he he won't get as easily agitated in theory as the younger one. So he has the responsibility to kind of to 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 be more mature, to act more mature. So I think that's part of it. I, I think probably William's natural personality as well is like that. Like he's not kind of edgy like Harry is. He's not cheeky, he's not impulsive. Um and so I think it is they, they both have these personalities that you'd expect from their birth order, but it also plays into their relationships. Could that have been a way to get some attention though from Harry? Would a personality develop that way or do you think it's just an inherent thing? I think it's a little bit of both. So I think it's probably inherent in in that uh, that we all have our own individual personalities that are nature rather than nurture, number one. Number two, for the, for the birth order, the fact that he's kind of not, seen as or probably talks to as being as grown up like all uh, siblings where there's that kind of age difference uh, and i think also the very fact that we were saying before that he doesn't really have a role so prince 
William is the future king, what is he? What's his job? I mean, you know, he does obviously, he's an ambassador for the royal family, but aside from that, he doesn't have a niche. So he has to carve himself one. And I do wonder whether him being a bit controversial, I'm not saying it was calculated for silly stuff that he did as a kid, but certainly more recently, him airing out his dirty laundry in the media, that gives him something, doesn't it? It gives him some celebrity, it gives him attention, gives him the opportunity to make millions and millions of dollars making podcasts. One of the revelations coming out from the book was that Harry had a smaller uh, bedroom at Balmoral, uh, which has, you know, it sparked uh, accusations of tone deafness from the public, especially right now when people are thinking about how to pay their bills, can't even heat their own homes. And we've got a guy who is a royal who's had everything handed to him, which is which has its own drawbacks, of course. But I suppose that kind of thing, you're only comparing to what you know and who's in your direct immediate vicinity. Uh, so that's, I, I suppose that's the kind of thing that speaks to exactly what you're saying. There's a couple of ways you could look at this, really. I mean, he absolutely is privileged and he's massively entitled. There's, there's absolutely no question about that. And he's in a very, very lucky position, especially financially. But I suppose the counter argument to that is that he didn't choose any of this himself. And so from his own perspective, he feels that he's being kind of targeted and wronged by members of the royal public, um, sorry, members of the royal family and the media in general. So he feels that he's kind of being victimized. And I think that's also part of his personality as well. I think he's easy to, he easily takes offense and he easily feels like people aren't treating him fair. And he wants reconciliation now, but first he wants accountability. Is that another sort of thing about status? Is that it, when you when you're accountable, do you think, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here, if you say, say that was my fault, are you pushing yourself down so that the status sort of, there's more an equilibrium? Well, firstly, I don't know whether he truly actually wants reconciliation. I mean, he says he does because that's the right thing to say. Uh, and if you want to be perceived as the one who's the bigger person as, as it wants to make up. But does he really want that? Because if he did, why would he release, you know, why would he go on Oprah? Why would he do a Netflix documentary? Why would he release a fairly damning autobiography? If you really, if your main aim was to make up with your brother, then surely you'd do none of those things. You would just try and reach out to your brother and maybe, you know, use intermediary. So I'm not saying he completely doesn't want any rec um, reconciliation, but to me, his behaviors suggest that there are other things that are more important to him than reconciliation. That's what I think. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. It's it's something that I always say. You know, and I, and a lot of people are saying, which is, you know, how many Netflix uh, adaptations and documentaries and books and things do they have to do until people leave them alone? You know, it's a joke that uh, they obviously don't want to be left alone because they don't want to stop talking. You know. On the other hand, you know, how frustrating must it be to feel like there's a narrative out there about you? And you want to change that narrative, right? So, so that must be a, a bit of a driver. Yeah. And despite everything I've said, I have to say that I do have a degree of, of sympathy or empathy for Harry and Meghan both after watching the Netflix documentary, because I think it did show actually that if what they say is correct, which is another huge thing, because as we say before, you've only got really the perspective of the storyteller, don't you? But if what they say is accurate, then they were treated completely uh, differently to how William and Kate were. So I can kind of understand why they would feel aggrieved. But I think going back to the point we we're making before, how much do the public care or not even care? Because obviously we care because we're consuming it all, but how much, um, how much can we relate to it and how much, how much concern and empathy do we have towards them? So uh, just to go on a kind of slight tangent related to that, one thing that I think is really interesting and also pretty hypocritical is that they say, or they said a few years ago that they want to separate themselves from the royal family and they want to be financially independent. 
I mean, to me, that's complete bullshit because they're not financially independent. You know, if, even if they wanted to be, they're not. So they got, do you know how much they got paid for the Netflix documentary? Bet it was more than I got paid for most of my episodes of this podcast. <laughs> Have a guess. Oh, anything I guess, because I want to just say a wild number now, but that's going to, then it'll be too high and it'll make what you say sound like 50 billion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be, is it in the, is it in the millions? Yeah. For just, for just sitting there like plonkers saying things. So what is it? Come on, ten it million. Is, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. It's ten million dollars. Ten million dollars. Stop. This is Andrew from the future, and I've come to realise that this figure of ten million is incorrect. It was actually a hundred million dollars for the Netflix thing, right? And twenty million for the book Spare quite possibly more money coming in in all sorts of other places. And, I, you know, mad money for the Spotify as well. So much more money than we even thought. I will leave you now. So continue listening to this um, wonderful podcast from the past, a few days in the past. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. So you and I as struggling uh, podcasters, YouTubers know how hard it is 
to, I'm not even breaking even, let alone making a profit. Please give to Dr. Shahom. <laughs> Please, we'll leave his address in the description. <laughs> I need money to afford more gold tea. Uh, yeah. I'm away here. But, um, yeah. No, but seriously, like it takes so much time and effort to, to do a podcast and to make it stand out and to advertise it and to get guests and blah, 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 blah. And it takes, you know, people years and they're not necessarily that successful at it. You get someone like Harry who, and Megan who come out and they get paid $10 million just to do one Netflix documentary. And I'm sure they had a, a deal with Spotify for their podcast. I can't remember the exact amount, but it was in the millions of pounds. Um, so I guess my, my point being, I know not everything's about money, but you can't, in my view, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I don't want anything to do with the royal family because they've mistreated me and I want to be independent, but then go and make literally millions and millions of, of uh, dollars from exactly what that is, from, from coming from that space. So I calculated how long it would take somebody on an average salary in the UK to make that amount of money. Do you want to have a guess how many years? To make 10 million uh, 20,000 a year, five years, 50, 50 years. So the $10 million is 8.4 million pounds. And the average salary in the UK, according to Alexa today, when I asked her was uh, 39,000. So it would take the average person 215 years to make that money. 215. That's if you didn't spend a penny, if you saved everything that you had, it would take the average person 215 years to, to make what they would have done. I imagine what a couple of weeks of recording, a few weeks maybe a couple of months it's also the prestige and the and and the reach you know that podcast obviously i was more jealous about the podcast and and i don't i have a problem saying i'm jealous because i'm just we are working our bottoms off here to to get these things out they signed the contract to do the podcast uh with their archetype or archetype or whatever it's called uh production company they signed that like a year before releasing anything uh they took ages in that time netflix cancelled various projects with them the point is they weren't turning up they weren't doing the work they weren't doing the work well uh and still they were getting opportunity after opportunity so a lot of us in the creative industries i think do look at them a little bit differently to how some of the public do and we do think oh come on this is so unfair and look life is unfair okay so fine but i think what we don't want is to then hear the constant complaining that's the problem and i am trying to be two-sided in this because i know it's such a controversial topic so the other side to that is is, well, what should they do? Just shut up and just go home? And But I suppose this is it. They could go to do their you know, podcasts and documentaries without complaining about how things are really difficult for them while other people are, are struggling to you know, make ends meet. And I suppose something that you said yourself, which I completely agree with, is maybe he feels like it's the only way that he can actually be heard. Because according to what Prince Harry said in his documentary, and again, you know, this is his version of events, I'm, I'm assuming that he's, he's telling the truth, there is a very different narrative from the royal family from the palace, palace about William. So he has his own team and they, they quash stories that are in, in any way negative about William. And according to Harry, they, they, not only did they not do that, but they, but they, there's suspicions that they might have even planted stories about Meghan to make her look difficult and to make her look like a, like a, just a, not a particularly nice person. And if that is true, then I suppose you can see Harry's point. He tries to complain. He tries to do the right thing by going through the right channels and having his own press team. And none of that's working for years. You can kind of understand why he eventually manages to escape using his kind of uh, terminology. And then you'd want to kind of speak out and say, actually, 
everything you've heard is not true. This is the truth. I, th- I think it's just, as you say, you know, it's the hypocrisy that's really difficult uh, and the double standards and the tone deafness, you know, when we're all struggling. There's that that feeling, you know, he's he'll lecture about uh, climate change or some of the other royals because they are by far, you know, they're not, they're not the only ones who deserve any blame in this. The royals, of course, you know, they're a weird bunch. Of course they are. How could you not be a weird bunch of people if you've been brought up believing you are divine you are like the representation of god and everybody else is beneath you You that is literally what the whole point of the monarchy sort of is so they're weird guy they're not blameless either and i don't want to hear from prince charles he's quite keen on the environment and i'm happy he is but i don't want to hear from him all this stuff while they private jet around the world i think that's what a lot of people have a problem with it's the you know by all means be regal and posh and whatever you want to be but don't lecture like your minions for like not putting the, the rubbish out in the right place or whatever when you're getting jets around the world so following on from that what do you think andrew in general about prince harry coming out writing his autobiography going on oprah doing the documentary what do you think i think he's um an idiot uh, just got, just hearing him speak, I don't think he's very smart. And and why would he be? Because he's not worldly. He's, you know, the Nazi uniform and all that stuff. But then I also feel sorry for him. He has a right to be an idiot. Most of us are. Uh, and most of us grew up and, and, and reacted and acted out and things. Um, there's, I wonder if there is an aspect of, you know... It's is it mis- maybe it's misogynist to say sort of the Yoko Ono syndrome, but I'm sure it happens just as often where you know somebody gets a boyfriend and it's a man who sort of changes things. Uh, but I've seen it a lot in my life with with men and women in my life. They get a new partner and you get Harry coming out with stuff like I was bigoted before and I was and it's like well goddamn right you were of course you were but we don't want to hear this is it I don't want to hear him now lecturing at me because we didn't do things as bigoted as what he did. Um, so that's it. It's a, but this is what I want to ask you though, because he killed twenty five people. That's another thing that came out. It's a weird thing that this is a prince of England in this sort of civilized age, and I understand why he did. He was part of the army, and I think he killed twenty five people. So, do you think that might have some effect in in some of his defensiveness, some of his personality? Uh, I didn't know about that. Actually, this is the first that I've heard of it. Um- I mean, I suppose it depends on how he perceives that. I imagine he would have perceived that as what you just said, as, as part of his role, as part of his duty. Um, I can't imagine that he would be massively traumatized by doing that, again, because he was actually doing it in his role. Um, I suppose something else we've not really talked about is the death of Diana. And uh, according to what he said uh, what he said in the past, in fact, I think he said it to Oprah, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, that it really affected him really badly, that he had like anxiety, depression. Uh, he used drugs quite heavily. He said he had panic attacks from regularly from the age of 28 to 32. So I think that probably had far more of an impact than what he did in the line of duty. And no matter what you think about him, according to him, he was not allowed to um, share his emotions or to talk about it even with family members. And he walked away feeling massively unsupported. And, you know, you've got to admit, he, he was only 12 at the time, even if there's parts of his personality that, that might grate on you, on you or anybody else now. It's pretty tragic to think of a 12-year-old kid who's lost their mother who has literally no, not even no support, but is actually kind of being pushed away at arm's length when he tries to, to get some comfort from family members. So if that's true, I mean, that's, that's kind of horrible, isn't it? But what I think is quite interesting about that is why does William not say the same thing? Does that mean William was often more support or does it mean that William's naturally stoic so he didn't need that level of support? Or maybe he feels the same way, but he's not willing to speak out against the family because 
part of his role is to kind of be stoic and to represent them. I wonder if it is exactly what you say. It's the role. And you just said about Prince Harry, it wouldn't have affected him killing those people. What he said in his book was he saw them as chess pieces taken off the board. Uh, and it, it wasn't a statistic that filled me with pride, the 25 enemy fighters that he killed, but nor did it make me ashamed. When I was plunged into the heat and confusion of battle, I didn't think about those as 25 people. You can't kill people if you see them as people. In truth, you can't hurt people if you see them as people they were chess pieces taken off the board bad guys eliminated before they kill good guys they trained me to other them and they trained me well and as you know prince william was trained to be the king the future king and i can see you know it's almost a recipe for this happening and that's without i don't mean to judge any individual here this was a recipe i guess a cocktail of okay we're going to raise these kids their mother's going to die a horrible horrible bunch of events happen they're not going to trust the press but one of them is given a slightly bigger room uh, at balmoral castle one of them is given more uh, duties and roles and things and is going to be the future king and has the queen queen elizabeth his grandma to look at as this sort of beacon of stoicism and the other is like well well spare so i i do i am starting to see how that would happen and i suppose that's it, it's just the, the reason william might not have spoken out is just that's his just like prince harry felt it was his duty to kill those people it's prince william's duty to to be to be king and to be solemn and to not say a word yeah yeah and to never kind of speak out against the establishment i suppose the other thing uh, and as i said i, I didn't know about what you, uh, the Harry killing 25 people this is the first I've heard of it. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit unfair here. Maybe I'm being a bit over cynical, but it does feel as if it might be a bit of a slight humble brag to me. Like, look at me, I'm a tortured soul and I've had to, you know, do difficult things in my life of privilege. I've also not had an EV ride and I've had to, you know, I've got this sense of duty and I've, I've lived a real life. That's what it kind of feels like me to, uh, to me a little bit. I think there's probably a bit of that, yeah. And again, you would want to prove that to people. You would want to say, okay, you guys might be trying to, you know, trying hard to make ends meet, but I've been out protecting the country. I've actually done stuff. I've not just sat around. It's a really complicated thing. And I wonder as well, uh, you know, I, I feel like so much of happiness in life is down to progress. It feels like, you know, every day, you judge each day on how it is compared to the previous day, a lot of that, I guess. Uh, and when you're born at the top with nowhere to go, I don't really know. You can only go down. So do you think that might be affecting any level of happiness within the royals? Yeah, I mean, I suppose when you have it all, especially financially, then you don't know what it's like to struggle, right? But then the counter argument of that is that when you have instant fame, when, you, when you're not looking for it since you're a child, that in itself probably has detrimental effects to your mental health. So when we look at, say, A-listers or social media stars, they want that fame and attention and they have that narcissism in them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing in the first place. I suppose with any kind of senior, or not senior, but any um, frontline member of the royal family, they're automatically going to have that. And especially if you're a prince, you have that since you're a child. And then you have something huge in your life, like your mother dying publicly, then there's even more scrutiny on you. So I suppose... I, for me personally, and I think a lot of people probably think this, I feel both a, a degree of um, lack of feeling sorry for them because they're so privileged, but also perversely a, a degree of sympathy because they've got this this kind of attention that, that they didn't want and they probably is probably quite unique. I don't think there's many other people in the world that have, have been through that. Yeah, I suppose the sort of Lindsay Lohans and a few of those people who haven't handled that kind of fame as a child well um, 
at all. I saw Macaulay Culkin on Joe Rogan talking about it, and you know what an in, what a what an unlikely and unique situation it is for a child. So what Prince Harry went through, very very few children the world over will have experienced that. So I suppose we have to give uh, give him something for that. What would you do? Let's say you're in your job as a psychiatrist, and Harry pops in tomorrow just before he's considering revealing all this stuff in his book and all that. What advice psychiatrically or psychologically would you give to him? Uh, first of all, solidify a spot on his podcast just to give uh, just to give me some exposure. <laughs> um, I suppose I would probably try and get to the bottom of what he actually really wants. Not what he says he wants, but what he actually really wants. Um, is it to let the public know his version of events because he feels that he's been him and Megan have been painted unfairly, which is not unreasonable? Is it actually to have a dig at members of the royal family? Like, is it revenge, basically? Is it that he feels uh, that he's been victimized now? Because he's never really been able to have a say, and now he wants his his own back. Uh, is it the opposite of that? Is it that he wants to actually genuinely make amends and wants to kind of reconnect with the royal family? Um, and I suppose that's, that's the first thing I'd do. And then I would actually unpick the factual matters and see if they fit with his perception of things. So I'm not calling him a liar and I, I, I haven't assessed him in person, but I think it's at least fair to say that some people think that he might be a bit too sensitive and a bit paranoid and some of the things that were said or done were, uh, he might have read uh, in between the lines. So, uh, you know, to give you a specific example, that comment about the skin color of his child, that could be a very hurtful comment. Absolutely. It could be a really racist thing or it could just be a genuine, a genuine kind mm. of inquiry. It's not. We should, we should clarify for for anyone who doesn't know what that was. Go for it. Oh well, I don't remember. So, was it a member of the royal family? <laughs> yeah, a member yeah, of the royal family said, uh, "We don't know who it was. They haven't revealed yeah. who it was, did yeah, yeah. they?" Uh, asked, "What will the skin color of your child?" Yeah, exactly. Be? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh. So, so I, I don't. I mean, we're going off on a tangent here. I don't know if that's racist. As as a brown man, as a brown person, if if I uh, was to have a mixed race child. If a friend of mine asked that question, if they asked it in an inquisitorial way, like genuinely, what will he look yeah. like? I don't think that's offensive. But if you, it's the tone rather than the content of the question, I think. If you're saying it as in, oh, they might look a bit weird and that's not kind of in line yeah. with the rest of the well, family, that's very I, different. I heard the person who was asking was wearing a white hood at the time and uh, I'm joking it was, wasn't a member of the, the KKK. I shouldn't say that word. You get banned off of YouTube. But uh but yeah, you're, I, I know what you mean. People often ask me, and it's a little bit different, but obviously, you know, uh, being from Jewish origins and stuff, people, you know, will you circumcise your child? Which again is a weird thing because it's like, what? How? Why do you have so much interest in the genitalia of my future child? Like, don't you don't worry about it. Like, they don't need the world to know, and I don't care. And you know, but people are just uh, intrigued. I guess I don't take it as like a the insulting thing. I know it is different to a skin color thing, of course. But it's, it's the way that it's asked, really. I think that the tone of how it is asked. So taking that specific issue of uh, of Harry's child, it can be asked in a, in a really horrible way or it could be asked in a possibly slightly naive and clumsy but inquisitive way. So if I was assessing him, I'd really try and unpick to, to try and get him to understand if what he's feeling is the reflection of the truth of what actually happened. Was he mistreated? Was Megan mistreated? Uh, or whether he's just being a bit sensitive. If he was sensitive to a point that it became a disorder, uh, if you found that his events, his version of events differed so much from the reality, w would there be a clinical diagnosis? What would what might that be? Yeah, absolutely. So I see, uh, so I work as a forensic psychiatrist, as you know, so I do assess people who usually have committed violence. And absolutely, there's a huge number of them who are quite paranoid, and that's why they commit violence. 
And to answer your question, there's lots of different reasons. So it could be that there's no psychiatric disorder and is literally because of the environment they grew up in. So to be specific, I have seen several um, kind of drug dealers or people that are grown up in gangs or in very violent areas. Uh, most of them happen to come from South London just because my assessments are in London and there's a high proportion of that in South London. Uh, and so I wouldn't say that's a psychiatric disorder. I'd say it's like a, a survival mechanism, really. So you have to be kind of on alert constantly because you could literally get beaten up or stabbed or worse because of the people that you're hanging out with or the area you're in. So that's one thing. You could have like a paranoid personality or even a paranoid personality disorder, which is pretty much what it sounds like. So it's when people are very kind of hypersensitive. They take neutral uh, comments as being quite offensive. They can, so they, they, they misunderstand things when people might, for example, be, be um, uh, get, say, making a joke or something. They think that's offensive. They hold grudges for a really long period of time. And on the extreme end of the spectrum, you can have something like a psychosis. So schizophrenia is a good example of that. That's when you have paranoid delusions. So you actually believe that there's a conspiracy and that people are, are out to get you or to hurt you. Just to be crystal clear, I don't think Prince Harry has any of those things, but I'm just saying that <laughs> that's what I would be assessing if I saw him. That's what, if you, if you were assessing him and, and it was found, so yeah, it's a hypothetical and it was found that his version didn't, uh, you know, represent what seemed to be the truth. So yeah, you're, you're, it's all, you know, potential things that we don't, you know, you're not diagnosing, because people get angry when you diagnose from a file, you're just saying it could be that. That reminds me of having a conspiracy debunker, Michael Shermer, on the show. And he was saying that it, evolutionarily, it's quite good for us to be paranoid like that and to sometimes misinterpret things. Because if you hear a rustling in the bushes and you assume that it's just like the wind, which it probably is, it could be a snake that kills you. But if you are quite uh, of a conspiratorial mind, uh, then it's actually better and you will, your tribe will evolve better because you will assume it's a snake, you'll be on guard. Uh, and, you know, so, and, and those kinds of people who are more conspiratorial like that are, are more paranoid on average and also more paranoid in their relationships and their friendships and families and people around them. So it might just be he is a little bit conspiratorial minded. And, and I guess in the long run, in, in terms of millions of years of evolution, that's quite a good thing. Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. That's a fair point. And I suppose going back to Harry, if everything you did is massively scrutinized and if you're constantly being told what you can and can't do, so something that came out in the Netflix documentary was just the level of control that, again, according to him, that the royal family had, I'd say probably over more over Meghan than actually over him. Just like she was told, for example, um, from memory, she was not allowed to text photos to her own friends if they were taken within, like, within royal family territory. So she had to ask for permission for that, for whether she's allowed to like send photos to her own friends because they don't want, you know, photos being leaked that, that might be unsavory. So if you're under that level of scrutiny, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of clear how that would shape your personality and make you paranoid. Which leads us on to Megan. And I guess, again, this is a difficult one. And I want to be careful here because I criticised her and I got a lot of flack for it. And I don't like getting flack. It puts me in an upset mood uh, and I feel misunderstood or whatever. I guess, I guess the difference here in opinion on Megan is about whether you re or one, whether one who is listening really believes she just fell in love with a guy and unfortunately she's in these circumstances and we've seen tons of movies like that that's Romeo and Juliet you know that's you're in love and unfortunately the family are not as nice as you hoped and that's really sad or for the more cynical minded among us 
if you think, okay, she saw her opportunity, you spoke before, Shaham, about the kinds of money she's now able to make and how her career, she had a career before, we should, you know, of course she did, uh, but it's now a different level. That podcast she put out got more listens than Rogan on in its first week. Um, and then if you believe that, like it was ambition that got her to that point, then it's like, okay, this person, I don't want to hear her complaining. Where do you stand on on Megan and, and where would you where would you stand on her from like a, a clinical perspective as well? I suppose the ultimate answer to that question is what her internal motivations were, whether it was actually love or whether it was whether it was searching for fame. So there are rumors, reports on the internet that from her old friends or some of her old friends, I should say, that she is quite narcissistic. So she's very calculated. She's very full of herself. So I'll, I'll be specific. Apparently, a couple of old friends have come out and said that Megan decided that she didn't want them in a, in the, in her life anymore, and she literally cut them off. So she just completely cut off all communications with them. There's a rumor that her previous husband, Trevor, she ended the relationship with him way before Harry, but because she'd got a level of fame from Suits, and she didn't want to uh, be married with him anymore. Not be, not you know simply because he wasn't like. He didn't match her status anymore. Um, now, if that's true, and that's a big if, because I don't, I can't say actually whether that's correct or not. If that's true, and if Megan did see this as an opportunity, this being the marrying um, Harry and getting into the royal family as an opportunity to massively inflate her status and her earning potential, and there are also rumours that she she restricted. Well, she resisted, I should say, royal protocol. So she kind of went out of her way to not follow the rules or to battle back against the rules, which nobody else in the royal family, whether, you know, um, born into it or marrying, marrying into it, ever did that. If all of that's true, then I don't think you can deny that she is narcissistic. You know, she's got a massive ego, a inflated self of, um, inflated sense of self-purpose, uh, probably sees other people with a bit of jealousy and wants other people to be jealous of her. You know, all these things that are typical of narcissists. But I have to I have to emphasize that if that all of that's true. And I don't think we really know the answer. I think there's a lot of speculation. I think only really Megan and the people very close to her know that for a fact. And I think it should be emphasized here that that's not you saying, and so she's a terrible person, or so she's much worse than other people. Because uh, I think a lot of Hollywood actors, I mean, let's be honest, like men, women, whatever, Hollywood actors and all those kinds of things, there's probably a high degree of narcissism in them and in the royals themselves. So, um, and, and you talk about, uh, you talked of, if she's breaking protocol, which most of the other family members don't do, but Diana did, and she got a lot of flack for it as well. Um, so it's a really, really complicated one. I found it, again, difficult listening to her podcast with Serena Williams. I tried to see her as not a narcissist, uh, and she just kept putting herself on this same pedestal with Serena, who I worship. I, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I like the tennis, and I just think she's incredible. And she just kept saying, why is it that people hate uh, women with ambition was what she was saying. And I just thought, well, I know what Serena's ambition is. You know, we all do. She sets it out from the beginning to be the best tennis player in the world. Fantastic. What a noble ambition. Whereas Megan never in that podcast anyway, or whenever I've heard her speak, set out what her ambition is. Uh, do, is it possible that, I mean, if she is a narcissist, does, does she... Does she like us like a psychopath would? Would she be walking around going wahaha in a Machiavellian way, like I know what I'm doing, or would she also feel like why is everyone get what have I done wrong? Um, I think if she was a true narcissist, she could she could still 
I'm trying to think now. I suppose that she would fe- she would be more sensitive to criticism than the average person. But what makes this really uh, quite a warped situation is that she does get more criticism than the average person. Yes. I think whether you like her or not, you have to agree with that. Like she has been treated completely differently and unfairly in the press. So uh, as an example, uh, there's this avocado thing. So in 2017, Kate had a, a, a nice article about her because some little kid gave her an avocado as a present. Then 2019, Megan mentions to, to somebody that she likes avocado on toast. And there's literally articles about her saying that she's supporting the, the farming of avocados, which is linked to water shortages and was like, you know, crucified for such an a anodyne thing. So I actually think she is treated worse by the by mainstream media and especially the tabloids. So it's really hard to know what is kind of her narcissism being extra sensitive and what is actual reality because it's just such a warped situation. But sorry, I'm rambling a bit. To, to answer your question, I think it could be a bit of both. I think it could be that she's actually sort of behind the scenes Machiavellian, quite happy with the controversy she's courted and the situation that she's in, that she's managed to bag herself a prince and kind of separate from the royal family and doesn't have to live under their protocols but still also be quite aggrieved by the way that she's perceived by other people. I think a lot of people, and this is why I am being so careful and trying to speak to both sides here, a lot of people don't understand at all. And I, and I, I get it because when you really like a particular celebrity or a particular thing, you know, you say, oh, I love Breaking Bad. And then someone says, oh, what? I hate it. It winds us up because it's our identity that becomes wrapped up in Breaking Bad, let's say, or in the princess, Meghan Markle. It becomes wrapped up in that. Uh, but it, does, it doesn't mean these people are beyond reproach. And but it also doesn't mean that we should go too far in criticizing them. And I do feel sorry for her because it must feel like everyone's against her a lot of the time. Um, again, going back to that podcast I listened to, it was just, it was just, if people want to know what I found difficult, she she spoke so much about feminism and how she's a feminist since she was a child and she really bigged herself up, which, okay, you know, there's, I don't think there's a huge problem with that. But then, as I say, she didn't set out what she had then done in terms of ambition and feminism. And all we can see is, well, she married a prince. And again, I don't want to speak as a, as a man about what feminism should be, but a lot of women in my life have said, well, that's the opposite of what they believe feminism should be about, marrying a prince and using his money. Uh, and then, you know, and the other thing is, she, if if she went into the the royal family knowing what it was about, you've sort of got to do the duties. I think that's how a lot of people feel. Like the duties are stupid. Like most of us are not royalists and monarchists. Most, or I don't know what the percentages are. Many of us are not. I'm certainly not. I think it's a whole stupid thing and they wear silly hats and they walk around like they're like godlike. I think it's really stupid. But I also think if you're going to marry into it and get all the advantages, at least do the duties because they're not that, you know, maybe they are bad, but, and that's the difference between her and Kate and maybe why she gets different kinds of press treatment. Because at the beginning, everyone loves Megan. But then do you think there's also, because things are complicated, maybe there is some racism involved. Maybe there is some anti-Americanism and some misogyny. I can't entirely discount those things. Can, can we? Yeah. So I think if you, if you look at it logically and try and take emotion out of it and just simply compare the way that Megan's been portrayed in the media versus Kate, then I think we touched on this before, like it's really difficult to, to argue that, that Megan hasn't been victimized and bullied. Like when, when the relationship first started, there were articles. And again, this, this all came out in the Netflix documentary. It showed like the headlines of quite a few of them of calling her like, I can't remember the exact words, but I think I'm sure like thug and sort of uh, her <laughs> urban background was, was very Ugh. much kind of, um, exaggerated. Uh, so I think that skin color probably has something to do with it, whether that's overt mm. or covert. 
Uh, I think the fact that she's American, as you said yourself, the fact that she's a divorcee as well. Um, and I think the fact that she's actually slightly ironically that she's got a personality probably acts against her because she's automatically uh, conceived or perceived as being rebellious. So Kate is very nice and polite, but she's very bland. Like there's not that much you can actually say. Like I can't, I can't think of one statement that Kate's ever made that's ever kind of no. gotten my attention, uh, which is fine. Like I'm, you know, she's, that sure. is part of the role. And if that's what she wants to do, that's fine. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but I suppose I'm saying that if you're the opposite of that, and if you are quite outspoken, then you can see how, if you're seen to be anything that's not expected in your role as a princess, that people will um, target you for that. Did you know before it was that British comedian, he tweeted a picture of a monkey with the royal family, which I don't believe for a second he meant uh, as a racial thing because it would it would just Danny Baker it was Danny Baker because yeah. it would have been in, it would have been insane for a guy who's not got a track record his whole life of saying anything racist to suddenly come out and put that very publicly into Twitter and get fired by the BBC it would have been just such a mad thing to do um, he just thinks that the royal family were a bunch of monkeys is what my, I get from that but until that point I didn't even know she was mixed race I thought she was white I mean did you did you and that doesn't mean the press didn't know by the way but did you know that yeah I think so but only because it was kind of mentioned repeatedly by the press i think yeah you i mean you yeah. have forgive me for being so forward a, a lovely complexion that is darker than hers yeah do, i mean do you are you <laughs> sorry are you concerned i mean though no, just because again i grew up with like a lot of jewish people around me a lot of jewish people also have skin color darker than hers she just looked like one of us and it, it, i guess what i'm getting at is it pains me that when i do criticize her i get so many comments saying oh here we go white guy having a go, you know, what, what, yeah. what do you think about that? Um, I, I think that it is a kind of very prickly minefield, isn't it? Because in a perfect world, you can say that people aren't being racist towards her and aren't, aren't excluding her or marginalize her because of her background or her skin tone. But, and again, this was shown, uh, highlighted in the Netflix documentary, she's received, you know, hundreds of thousands of very overtly racist tweets. So I suppose that's the problem. It's not what the average you can't just consider it as what the average person thinks or what Danny Baker thinks. You have to kind of accept that there are the very right-wing um, elements of society who are overtly racist. So you can't dispel it either. You can't say that she's being she's bring, using the race card unfairly because there's literally people that are racist towards on a regular basis. Um, and I suppose you've got a question, If every, and again, I keep saying this, but if everything that they say is true, both Meghan and Harry, you've got a question, why should be treated differently? And as I said before, there are a couple of other reasons, possibly her being American, her being divorced, but you can't ignore the fact that race can be part of it as well. She doesn't do her duty. That's what it is. But there, there is, as you, I've, you know what, I've moved more towards what you're saying now because I went through a stage of like, oh, it's such nonsense and that kind of thing. Just a lot of the race stuff because I because I know that I gather anyway that most people just aren't or they don't think I, I, that's what I think anyway and then recently I went on a couple of centre-right big big podcasts and every other comment was like Jew yeah, it's a Jew here it's a Jew and again they make up I'm, I'm, I have to believe a very small proportion of society but they do exist um, and I think I wanted to believe that they don't. And that must be hard for Megan if she's already feeling, perhaps wrongly in some cases, that everyone's against her. But then to see all that stuff, it must just confirm everything she believes, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I have to say, even though I've spoken in some less than flattering terms about her in general, and I'm, I'm making big um, 
assumptions here because we don't actually know like a, a lot of what the truth is like, for example, her actual motivations. I have to say that I do feel more sympathetic towards her and towards Harry after seeing the Netflix documentary and it kind of opened my eyes to lots of different things. Um, and some of the messages she received as well as being very racially um, hostile were just horrible in other ways, like death threats for her own child and um, like calls for violence against her for pretty much no reason. So, I mean, it, I suppose what I'm saying is that hatred does exist and we can't pretend that it doesn't. It's disgusting. I still think she's a narcissist though. Um, speaking of narcissists, uh, we, we've got 15 minutes left and I thought we could have a look at the name on the other name on everyone's lips at the moment, which is Andrew Tate. So we, quickly for anyone who doesn't know Andrew Tate, what, what social media guy who's a bit of like a, a, a very... Uh, what, what is he, Shahom? I can tell you've done your research for this. <laughs> no, I know who he is, but I, I, as soon as I say, this is this is the problem with doing this for so long, is that everything I'm about to say, I think that one group of people is going to be annoyed at me or another group is going to... So I was going to say he's this guy who hates women. No, then people will be angry at me for saying that because maybe he doesn't and he's playing a role. That's what Joe Rogan said. And then maybe he's just like, a, you know, he's saying what some people need to hear, some men who don't feel represented in the media, which I get as well. Ah, you tell us, who is he? <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I, I can answer that question. So Andrew Tate is uh, Romanian-born, I believe, and he's he grew up in both England and Luton, actually. He grew up in abstract poverty. Uh, and in Romania, he's an ex-kickboxing champion, so he's actually got a very um, successful record in martial arts. And he became famous, I want to say maybe about three or four years ago, uh, and became quite viral because he has very... Uh, he, he makes some very wild, controversial statements, some of which are clearly misogynistic and clearly sexist. Uh, he is, I would, if I had to, if I had to define him in two words, I would say toxic masculinity is literally the textbook definition of toxic masculinity. So for your viewers, that is some people that have a lack of empathy. Uh, they don't like to show emotions and they see emotions as a sign of weakness. There's, it's just hyper manliness, really. Uh, it's all about domination. There's often homophobia, often misogyny. Is that a clinical? Is that a clinical thing? Like as a psychiatrist, which like toxic masculinity? No, it's not a diagnosis. It's a behaviour. I would say a behaviour uh, and a movement. Is that too strong a word? Or a collective behaviour, a, con a collective uh, agenda, more than it is an individual diagnosis. Hmm. Would you speak uh, so, to other, like to colleagues? You know, oh, this guy's got a bit of the old toxic masculinity. No, I would probably use other psychiatric terms to describe him. So uh, at the risk of re repeating ourselves about Meghan Markle, I would say that he's a narcissist. So he loves being the center of attention. Uh, he it doesn't care about who he offends. He says very controversial things. I think he's quite, so I think he's quite dangerous actually. And I, I'll explain why. I think because he represents, and he would say that this is not his fault and he, and he can't choose who follows him, but he does clearly represent a core group of people who uh, are worried about their, uh, who feel disenfranchised. These are usually young men uh, and they are scared that their male privilege is being challenged. So these are people who might have quite sort of sexist views and now with the whole woke culture, the Me Too movement, they feel threatened, I think. So somebody like Andrew Tate coming out and saying Things like women are are uh, only there for sex, and women are should be the possession for men, which is things that he said quite publicly. They feel that he's given them some representation. Yeah, and I think again for those listening who are, who don't know enough, maybe about Andrew Tate or this is new for them or whatever. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think that's an exaggeration or too strong what, what Shahom is saying because he, he really is quite far because I think there are some people who just have a genuine concern for some difficulties in being a man 
which I think is a you know it's not it's not a domain I know that much about. I just sort of go about what, my life each day. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what, yeah, and that's been sometimes the problem why I found some aspects of like trans ideology quite hard to understand because I don't feel like a man or I just sort of am. I don't feel like a th- identity. I just sort of am and I do, and then I'll die. And and I understand that other people feel differently, and I have to try and uh, be more empathetic to understand that other people do feel like a thing. Some people feel like a man, some people feel like a woman, and some people feel like a something in between or whatever. But some of those men who feel like men don't have it easy. And I think it is it is true that if you're an ugly man, which you and I suffer terribly from being, um, but if you are like a, if you're an unattractive man, and if you're a man with no you know wealth and status and blah 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 blah. Life is going to be quite hard on you. And on top of that, you have to deal with being told, oh, well, it's all easy for you because you're a man. And so I think that that can be difficult for those people. However, someone like Andrew Tate, like I would say Jordan Peterson, who I don't agree with a lot of the stuff he says, I think he can be quite helpful because I've heard him say a lot of those things, but then say to the lonely men, like, but why should those women go out with you? They don't have to. They I, and I respect them for having high uh, expectations, and I think that seems like an okay thing to say. Whereas this Andrew Tate guy is like a whole. We're talking levels beyond beyond that. So I'm just saying that before people listening are going, "Oh, and it sounds woke or whatever," you know. But uh, please uh, continue. <laughs> so I, I, I suppose I think that he's dangerous. Well, there's the recent allegations, which we'll come to in a sec, but. Uh, even before all of that, I think he's dangerous for for what I just said about about speaking to disenfranchised, potentially dangerous people, young men. But also, I think he's actually very, very clever. He's very tech savvy. I shouldn't maybe clever is not the right word, but um, conniving, cunning. I think so. For example, he's he's managed to use TikTok uh, and I believe Instagram amazingly. So he's managed to give these little snippets. He's got a team around him that constantly posts post material, and loads of them have gone viral. So his his fame has has shot up massively. I believe he was the most Googled person in all of 2022. So, you know, it has worked for him. And I think he's actually, and I've got to be careful because I don't want to be seen to be complimenting because I don't want to compliment him, but he's actually quite eloquent in the way he makes his points. So he's sort of snappy, slightly very sarcastic. He can be quite funny and he's quite quick. So uh, he was interviewed by Piers Morgan quite recently and he kind of stood his own. Uh, because he able is able to a bit like Jordan Peterson is able to respond really well to criticisms and get into arguments and kind of I don't know if I'd say win but certainly twist arguments in in his favour really really well. The other thing about him is that and again thinking specifically of Piers Morgan's interview he never apologises so even when even though he kind of semi retracts some of his things saying they got taken out of context he won't commit to one statement that he will kind of retract which is barn door narcissism. Oh, is it? Okay. Why is that? Why would a narcissist not apologize? Again, is that a status thing? It's, it's about grandiosity. So the core of being a narcissist is believing that you're better than other people, believing that you're more intelligent, that your opinions and ideas matter more. So if you're a true... Well, I think it's partly because of his narcissism, because he doesn't... Um, because he, he thinks that he's, he's, his thoughts and opinions are more important. But I also think it's because he knows that he's got this hardcore group of right-wing followers... Uh, the anti-woke movement, and he doesn't want to lose them. He doesn't want to lose their support. So even when he's having a relatively polite conversation on a, on a m- mainstream channel like Piers Morgan's, he doesn't want to retract any of his statements because he doesn't want to lose his supporters. Do you think he is it? Would it just be a straight-up diagnosis of narcissism? Can you can you be a psychopathic narcissist, a narcissistic psychopath? 
So there's a massive overlap between narcissists and psychopaths. All psychopaths are narcissists, but not all narcissists are psychopaths. So to be a psychopath, as well as being narcissistic, so as well as, you know, being full of yourself and, and being egocentric, which means that you're kind of at the center of, of the world in, from your view, you also have to be really lacking empathy, which I think he probably does, but you have to be quite sort of cunning and manipulative. So to be fair, he does, he does have a lot of the traits. He doesn't have some of the traits of being a psychopath, so they're usually quite parasitic. So they kind of leech off other people. I think Tate, for all his flaws, is, at least from what he says, he's very um, willing to uh, take the responsibility and blame. So he he doesn't kind of, you know, he, he fully commits to what he says and he doesn't try and, he doesn't try and shirk off any responsibility. He had a strange upbringing. I don't know too much about it, uh, but he was born in 1986 and as the son of a renowned chess player. Uh, and and, a, and a, well, this is just on a, some, some website called Open Media Hub and a lovely catering assistant. Does that, does that mean that was his, his father was a, or his mother was a catering assistant? I think, I think that the, his mother was a catering assistant, but his father was like a, a, a world-class chess player. In fact, he played Piers Morgan at the end of their interview and beat him within like two minutes. That's funny. And so, we, we, yeah, go on. I, I was just going to say, we have to talk about the recent allegations, so that's the reason that he's been in the news. So his whole thing was, and again, um, I, know I keep going back to this, but he said specifically in the Piers Morgan interview, and he said at other, other times when he's been criticized, look, you say all these things about me, you call me you know, misogynistic, you call me sexist. There's not been one single woman that's ever come out that's made an allegation against me. I've never physically uh, hurt a woman. So, you know, look, all these A-list uh, celebrities, all these Hollywood stars that are my age that have my level of fame, can you say that about them? Which is actually, you know, quite a hard point to argue against. Until very recently, like literally within the last few days, there's been these, uh, he's been arrested in Romania. So Tristan, um, his brother and Andrew were arrested apparently for human trafficking and for the R word, which I don't want to say to, to ruin your podcast, but for, you know, assaulting, assaulting women. And the Romanian police have accused him of being part of an organized crime group. So the reason that I think that this is really interesting is because it kind of, completely destroys his argument. So his argument is that, you know, I'm just representing manliness. Uh, I, I denounce toxic masculinity as a concept. I protect women and women, you know, uh, in fact, he said this, that uh, so many more women come up to me and say to me that I respect you for, for being like an old school man, for being a manly man. Um, and then more, more women say that to him than ever criticize him. But now everything's been turned on his head. If these allegations are true, then it shows that he's actually dangerous. He's not just you know, somebody that's got a, a sharp bark but won't bite, he's actually a, a you know, offender, sex offender. I guess the problem with some of the extremes on the internet uh, or just in, in life is that there's, there, there tend to be grains of truth in, in, in these things. So I obviously do a lot of time, look, spend a lot of time looking into Scientology, uh, which is an awful cult that ruins people's lives. But the basic essence, which, which is not just in Scientology, but most cults, which is like, you know, sometimes you need to pick yourself up and take care of your own life and you can do it. You, you, every, they, phrase, they frame it as everything's your fault, which I don't think is very helpful. But that idea of like, you know, you can turn this around. You can do, you that seems to be the essence of most cults and most cultish gurus and things. And I think there's a lot of that in Jordan Peterson and there's particularly a lot of it in Andrew Tate. And I think a lot of that's, could be helpful for people, particularly. Do you buy into the whole the growth mindset and fixed mindset? Because I was thinking about this yesterday. If you're if you've got a fixed mindset, then being told that won't help. You're just thinking, oh, well, I'm rubbish then. But if you've got a growth mindset and you're told you can do this, 
maybe you can actually turn your life around. So there must be some grains of truth in what these guys say. Yeah, so it's interesting you say that because Andrew Tate definitely has that message. And I have mixed feelings about that. So I'm just going to kind of extend that a little bit. One thing that he said uh, consistently to lots of different people is that he doesn't believe in the concept of clinical depression. So he says that he suffered from like problems in the past. You know, he grew up in poverty, but he doesn't accept that he can ever be depressed because yeah. he doesn't like the idea that it's, a, it's an external thing that happens to somebody yeah. and that everybody has to take responsibility for their own lives. and They have to get their way out of it. Tom Cruise yeah. is the same thing. You'd be out of a job, mate. <laughs> so this, so this is why I've got, this is why as a psychiatrist, I feel ambivalent about it because on the one, right. Well, first of all, the, I've seen, and I've treated, I've literally in front of me seen people that have come in post-suicide attempt as part of my job. So I know that there's a, an extreme end of the spectrum where people have this clinical depression that's not related to, um, social issues that is just there. It's pervasive. It robs you not just low mood, but lack of energy, you know, suicidal thoughts inability to socialize makes you isolated, withdrawn. I've, I've literally seen that many, many times. Um, and I think it's harmful to say that that doesn't exist or people should just shake the, like shake it off and, and knock themselves out of it. I think that's, that's completely unfair and completely untrue. And it's slightly disrespectful to those people. Having said that, I'm not against the idea that people who are on the other end, the much milder end of the spectrum who do have social issues, who have whatever problem it might be from lack of exercise to, um, to probably, you know, being unsatisfied at work to problems with family members, or we've just come out of a difficult relationship, so many different social issues. I think there is something powerful in saying that you don't have to accept the situation that you're in and that you can do things to improve your life. So I, I do think that part of his message is true. So, you know, to be crystal clear, I'm not saying I agree that depression doesn't exist. I'm just saying that his message of, in for some cases that you can, and you should take responsibility for your life and improve things if you want to feel better. I fully agree with, but I also think it's quite dangerous for those people on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And then not hold these people up as prophets. You know, I've always, I've thought that about Jordan Peterson. And like, if I ever criticize something he said, people go mad at me. And it's like, I, I quite like a lot of the stuff he says. You just don't have to hold him up as like this. Oh, you wouldn't do that with a friend or a family member. But we see these people who are like the online gurus like Andrew Tate online, and then they become gods. Like you would, if that was your friend, you'd go, oh, that's interesting. You're quite insightful. Thanks, mate. And that's it. You know, where they go so far though. What I wonder what that is as well. Is that that need to have to 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 have someone on a podium? You know. Yeah, I suppose is going back to what we were saying before. For some people, they feel like he represents what they want to say, but they don't have the uh, the platform or the balls or the uh, eloquent ability to actually say it. Um, what I do think about these charges though is that if they're proved, because you know we don't know whether or not he's denied them, we don't know whether they're true or not. If they are proved and if it's correct, then obviously it's going to completely destroy him as a media personality. I think that there will be some hardcore followers who are cl who are clearly like very misogynistic, uh, who are pretty fucked up, who will continue sort of following him, but he won't have like, you know, a platform if he's a convicted R word, then, you know, people aren't going to take him seriously. I bet he will. But, well, I think <laughs> he will what? I bet. I bet people would ignore that. People ignore so much stuff about like the people that they want to follow, you know? I, I think the same goes for who we were talking about before with Meghan Markle or Prince Harry or the Royals. All of these people have done pretty bad things. Look at Tom Cruise. Some of the, I know I'm obsessing, aren't I? But some of the stuff that he's done, people still go and pay for his movies. I, you might be right. I, we, can, we can see in a, let's see in a year if he is, as you say, if he is um, convicted.
I would respectfully disagree simply because of the nature of, of the allegations, like it is human trafficking and the R word. I think there's a few things that people will kind of give you a pass for, but I think those are pretty like heinous. Apart from the P word, there's not much that, could, that an individual can do that's worse. But just very quickly, I was going to say that if they're not proven, so if he beats the case or the charges are dropped or there's not enough evidence, then I think he will absolutely use it to his advantage. So I think he will chase more clout. It will feed into his kind of paranoid grandiosity. I think that he will twist it to make it look as if the woke, the woke movement and people on the left wing uh, of working with the police, which is completely not true, but I think that's the narrative he'll go with and he'll become even more popular. God, I think that's probably how Danny Masterson, again, a Scientologist, that, that 70s show actor, probably feels right now because there wasn't enough evidence to convict him recently of a similar uh, thing. And uh, you can now use that as further evidence that everyone's against you for whatever reasons. Man, it's been fascinating, Dr. Shaham Das. Uh, did we miss anything? Was there anything we, that you wanted to say left? Uh, just one very small Go thing, on. which is just for your viewers, which is about Greta Thunberg. So do you know about Andrew Tate's yes. beef with her? I just thought that was funny. <laughs> she said <laughs> small dick or something. So he... He, uh, well, I, I just preface this by saying, I'll be, I'll be very quick because uh, I know we're running out of time, but I preface this by saying that I think Greta Thunberg, for, for Andrew Tate's perspective, is the perfect nemesis because she is exactly the opposite of him. She's the antithesis. She's woke. She's female. She's young. He's like callous and sensitive. He's cold. So I can completely understand why he would try and make an enemy out of her, but it completely backfired. So he wrote some sort of really snarky email about, let me send you a list of my collection of cars so that you can let me email you the emissions that they, that they release. And then she replied something like, yeah, you can, you can email me on smalldickenergy at getalife.com. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> it is sort of brilliant, but it's also a bit like, I don't know. She winds me up a bit as well, you know. I'm, I'm happy she's doing her stuff because we do need, you know, I don't want my kids to not have a world to grow up in. Maybe I'm just getting really cynical and old and just, because I'm now thinking everyone we've spoken about in this long podcast, I think is a narcissist or horrible or this. Or that. Maybe I'm just mean- she winds me up as well. And I just think, is that a, a bit of a childish response? Is she going down to his level? Uh, I don't know. Well, I think the opposite. I think, I think the very fact that she's dismissing him is uh, quite clever. So he's, she's not engaging him in a proper adult debate. She's almost dismissing him like, like he's a petulant little kid. So I thought that was really, I think that's the best way, the absolute best way to deal with uh, somebody like Andrew Tate. I think what it is, is that I've started to think that anybody who is able to get themselves to the limelight to such an extent, so the Royals, uh, Greta Thunberg, Andrew Tate, Piers Morgan, who Shaham Das, Andrew Gold, all these people must have something, I don't know, something narcissistic to, to become, obviously we're not that, that well-known or successful, but those people to, to get there, I think every leader, every prime minister, every president, I just feel like there's something a bit like, oh, I wonder what they're like at home. You know, but also we need those people sometimes. We we need a bit of you know uh, activism, for example, about the environment. So, so good on her, and I'll I'll try and be nicer. <laughs> oh, Dr. Shaham Das, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, please, everyone, go to a Psych for Sore Minds, one of the best channels on YouTube, where Dr. Shaham, the ominous. Should Hominus uh, analyzes all different kinds of cases. He's got amazing experience as well in psych forensic psychiatry. So please give him a follow. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Dr. Sharm. Mr. Gold, it's always a pleasure chatting to you, my man. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. 
Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You are wonderful and amazing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining in. Thank you, Dr. Shaham Das. Hope you guys enjoyed that. It was just a bit of, I don't know, it's a bit of intrigue, isn't it? Obviously, we can't really analyse these people. We don't have them sat on a couch in front of us. Well, I can't analyse anyone, but he's a trained, uh, Dr. Shaham Das, I should say, is a trained forensic psychiatrist so he can uh, analyze people he has like a certificate and everything um so go follow him on a psych for sore mind stick around for some big episodes coming up come support me on patreon.com slash andrew gold and i'll see you soon it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.